0: Try as I may, I could never everyone, and welcome to Intersections Match's Talk Radio, a show for people who resonate with Mahatma Gandhi's quote, "Learn like you're going to live forever. Live like you're going to die tomorrow." This is Justina, your host, and the founder of Intersections Match, a global personalized matchmaking and coaching company for successful and commitment-minded singles. To understate the obvious, COVID-19 has dramatically transformed reality for practically everyone on the planet. Today, we're continuing our multi-industry COVID-19 series with an episode on healthcare in the time of COVID-19. I continue to dedicate this series to the heroes on the front lines in the medical community at large, many of whom continue to serve us all despite risk to themselves and their families. With no further ado, I'm very excited to welcome to today's show one such hero, Dr. Naiva Khan, a geriatric specialist who's also board certified in internal medicine, Dr. Khan's experience includes serving as a medical director, in addition to her extensive clinical practice. Welcome, Dr. Khan. Thank you for having me, Justina.
1: This is great to be on your show.
0: It's a privilege to have you. And tell us what is what is it like to practice medicine in the time of COVID-19, especially you know being a geriatric specialist. Um,
1: before I answer your question, I actually have to share with you, um, how, how naive I was when I lived in Queens, New York. And I had this uh, vision that, um, the way we practice medicine in New York, that's probably how it was all over the country. And then when I started moving to different states, I saw, um, how medicine is in different areas. So currently I'm in Wyoming. Um, and it, it, is, it is a different um, environment in Wyoming versus New York as to how people live. So medicine is different here. And I also have to share with you, before I talk about COVID, um, my recent experience when I went to Bethel, Alaska. Um, this is an Alaska. area
0: where... Okay.
1: Yeah, Bethel, Alaska, and I had no idea, I thought when I was in Wyoming that this is rural medicine, and I figured this is, I, I know exactly how rural medicine is in America, and this is probably how it is all over the country, and when I went to Bethel, Alaska, my eyes were open, and I saw a different, completely different way of practicing medicine.
0: Interesting. How so? Tell us about that. How so? How so? Completely different.
1: That's so, really interesting. Yeah. So in Bethel, um, so this is a very small town which serves um, the the Yukon Delta. It serves over fifty tribal um, Native American tribes, and patients actually come to the hospital via airplanes and Medicaid pays for it. And due to bad wow. weather and so sometimes they actually have to come to the hospital and stay overnight and there are cases when women are pregnant um they actually have to come and they actually have homes where they have to live there like the last month of their pregnancy because if they do go into labor and if there's during the winter months they may not be able to come to the hospital because planes cannot fly and they do have very limited Access to um, healthcare in the sense that yes, with bad weather, limited transportation, plane is the only way, or the boat, pretty much. Um, they can't drive. Wow. There is no road system. I had no idea how limited the road services in Alaska. So when you ask me wow. in terms of how how it is. To practice medicine in the time of COVID. So I think if you ask yeah. someone in New York, they would give you a different answer versus uh, someone in another state. Um, so for me, I can tell you being in Wyoming. Um, yes, we definitely have less cases than New York. Um, but we are following the same guidelines as New York. We okay. have we have had few deaths as well in Wyoming, not obviously the same extent okay. as New York. Here, um, we we did have the luxury of seeing how things were panning out in New York City and in other states. So we had the time to sort of implement social distancing,
0: okay. uh, given
1: that we have a smaller population so our county was able to implement other practices uh, so our healthcare system was not uh, as overwhelmed as other big cities so
0: here okay. that's
1: good uh, to hear. yeah so um, we actually decided to same as other states we decided to cancel our elective procedures and um, any sort of um, you know sort of radiologic procedures as well and in clinic, we actually implemented telemedicine. This is something we were talking about for about two years, and this kind of went into effect in two weeks. And we are still, wow. we're still serving our community. We're, I still have the same sort of patient panels. I'm seeing the same number of patients, but via telemedicine.
0: Okay. Well, you said a couple things, though. Let me, let me ask you about this. I know you're from Queens, so you're from New York. So are you hearing, and I know, um, are you hearing firsthand from colleagues practicing there and elsewhere throughout the country? Um, you know, I it, it really, um, you know, very insightful regarding the diversity of of experiences of physicians and patients throughout the country. There's really, there's r- some vast differences, it seems. Um, anything you're hearing from from colleagues that are kind of in the heat of it in in New York or other cities, metropolitan areas like that? Um, I have a few
1: friends in New York, one friend who works okay. in urgent care, and she actually um, contracted the virus um, but thankfully, oh, she recovered. Okay. um She okay. was symptomatic for about a week um, she she just had mild you know body ache and some shortness of breath, but she recovered. Um, okay. her experience um, so she since she works in an urgent care, she has had a lot of patients who don't have primary care physicians. And a lot of them do have language barriers. And what she Mm -hmm. noticed was that um, some of the patients were coming in, they tested positive, but they were returning back to the urgent care place two days later because they weren't feeling better. And what she noticed is they were coming in without masks and they were taking the train to come back to the urgent care places. (sighs) And Uh she was very much concerned about this with the surge in the number of cases, like, hey, is this contributing to the spread? And for yeah. her, um, I know, like, we talk about this, like, hey, if anyone has the virus, there's this quarantine for 14 days. So in her mm-hmm. facility, she actually was back at work in seven days because they needed people there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and, uh, that's so interesting about the subway and about the patients. So mm-hmm. you were talking about patients who tested positive and yet they were then, you know, um they were they were then released to to go home and self quarantine. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. I eh? I guess I'm not following and then they came back, you said a couple of days later, right, because they needed more care, basically. Um, but they did so, you know, just, you know, like taking the subway, like all the time without a mask. And
1: am am I Mm -hmm. hearing this
0: right or? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah.
1: So, so, so I, so I trained in Elmhurst hospital in Queens, New York, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen in the news, which is the epicenter of the epicenter. That's how people describe it. And there have been reporters right outside of Elmhurst hospital, And you've seen, uh, you've seen lines of patients, right? And if you look at the area, so there, there is a huge, um, immigrant population there. So there is, there are Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, undocumented and uninsured patients, um, people there. And they do not have primary care. So for their mode of primary care is going to the emergency room, going to urgent care places. So, we we think in other places, hey, if I'm not feeling well, um, for example, in Wyoming, my patients are calling me. So I am triaging sure. and I'm telling them, hey, stay home. And when they don't feel better, they're calling me back. Right. But these patients right. do not have that luxury. So they, they're going back to the emergency room. They're going back to the urgent care. And how are they going to go back? In New York City, the, right. the main mode of transportation is public transportation. Right. It's a subway system. Absolutely. Um, and then. And that wasn't shut down. And what happened is that because there were less riders, they actually cut down service. So there were less trains, but people were taking Mm -hmm. those trains. So there were more Sure. and not everyone was wearing masks because my friends were actually sending me pictures and saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be.
0: People are in trains without masks. Yes. And can you just, uh, approximately, when, at what, when was this, like, when was this happening? Exactly. I mean, is this still happening right now in, in, um, you know, towards kind of the end of April, or was this a couple of weeks ago? With that, you know, with, with no masks on the, because these are systemic, is right? These are systemic issues, right? There's no one person to blame yeah. in that sense. It's not about blaming. Yeah, it's yeah, about yeah, just yeah. systemic issues, right? So, like, like you're saying, so, how so, do you get so, somewhere on, uh, in New York? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so, so, so the the friend in urgent care. So I spoke with her about two mm-hmm. weeks ago. So this is what she was sharing, and the pictures were basically oh, that's so uh, were sent to me in in um, basically yeah. So this is this is uh, when this is in March, basically end of March. Okay, so this is okay. just yet. Yeah, oh okay. yeah. Okay. And. and okay.
0: So end of yeah.
1: See. There yeah so there there is the mandate in terms of wearing masks, and yes people are wearing uh yes they're implementing that more so right now, but still when you right. think about it in terms of the New York city in general like and just having grown up there like subways are also a place where a lot of homeless people will seek shelter, sure, sure, and, yeah, and then when you have a uh, one homeless person in one car, guess what happens people move from that part to another one. And so then that becomes even more
0: crowded. Wow. Yeah. And that, you know, the Emerson, you know, you're having trained at Emerson, having that inside view into into sort of what happens there. That is, well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's troubling, um, but it's, um, it's insightful, right, to kind of look at the different points at which you know, you know, the patient experience too, and like what they what they kind of need to do given the constraints they're facing as well. And um, wow, so but but I have to
1: kind to, of but go ahead. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, but I have to say, like,
1: even even so, those are the limitations. And I think there's this, this, like right. like you said, these are like more of systemic issues. So one thing is this virus is doing is kind of shedding light on some of the underlying things that exist in this country. Right. Um, So exactly. But but in terms of Elmhurst Hospital, but that's still that is actually the safety net for a lot of these people so even though this, they're going to the emergency room for primary care that that's how they're getting care and um and one thing i will say in terms of the hospital that yes they do not turn away any any they do not turn away any any patients and um mm-hmm. people people sometimes wait in the emergency room 7 8 hours for their care and um, and they do have a primary care clinic in place but obviously again um It's just, there's just so many patients and in terms of the doctor to patient ratio. So, so there are limitations and they do have in terms of like they will provide medications for a minimal fee. So they do have a process
0: Mm -hmm. in place, but in terms of the demand is just so high. Absolutely. And then do they, I mean, do they have there the, the PPE, the, the, the masks and all are so limited even, you know, at this point for the healthcare workers, do they even have masks to send the patients who have tested positive, right? Do they have that they can send them with so that when they go back, they, they are wearing them? Do you have any idea from your colleagues there? Are they able to equip the patients that, you know, that they, uh, that leads so I, with, with that I I yeah. I yeah I cannot I cannot answer
1: that question um okay. I, I don't sure. know in terms of what's happening yeah. in Elmhurst Hospital but I can tell you in terms of where right. my pa- my friend worked. they were definitely not okay. giving the patients the masks because they had to sort of right. um, conserve equipment for themselves so right
0: right no enough yeah. right okay. Well, you know, to balance and thank you for sharing all of that. It's, it's one of those only kind of an insider would, would have a sense of, of that. Any, any, you know, frontline stories you can share, you know, of course, anonymously showcasing the heart, the courage of fellow physicians or patients, right? Um, facing this, you know, this pandemic, basically. So again, like I said, here
1: we have been lucky in terms of, um, not yes. having, many sort of devastating cases, but I will share, um, in terms of one, one story. Um, this is actually a a story of a, a story of a nurse who works at the clinic. And this is just to showcase okay. in terms of what's happening just with, um, limited testing. Um, and also mm-hmm. in terms of people afraid of losing their job. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so I, I, I took care of a nurse. I, I am the primary care doctor of a nurse, and she's 38. And she she's actually a survivor of colon cancer. And she came in contact okay. with another person at work who tested positive for COVID. So initially, they told her okay. to self quarantine, and um, so they didn't test her because again, we are we were basically you know sort of prioritizing in terms of who to test because due to the limited supplies. And she became symptomatic. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. initially, um, they, they opted. Uh, we, we basically decided that, okay, if someone is symptomatic, we'll just presume the patient is positive and we'll just, you know, sort of symptomatic treatment, self-quarantine for 14 days and we'll monitor and we'll see, um, how they progress. And if they do become short of breath or there's a desaturation, then we'll, we will admit, admit them to the hospital. So that was, that's mm-hmm. pretty much the protocol that we're following. Um, but for her, um, she she has not desaturated, but she's been very symptomatic in terms of her breathing. And she, for her, the psychological fear is that, okay, she had cancer. So obviously she has the comorbidities. She has like, heart, you know, high blood pressure and cardiac condition. And uh, she's afraid for her family. She's also afraid that, okay, she's off of work. Um, is she going to sort of be let go or not? Um, so constantly sort of with that fear of, okay, I have to recover from the disease, but I also have to sort of save my job. Um, so these are kind of the fears and con- concerns that go through patients, um, you know, workers sort of mindset. Absolutely. So for her, you know,
0: it's... go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please continue. Please continue. I so, just wanted to echo that there's so. I, okay, yeah. I just wanted to echo there's so many economic implications and it's just so multifaceted, right? That um, mm-hmm. continue that. So um, for her, so it's
1: it's been one of those things where, um, so and there's the anxiety too, um, in terms obviously just the, the stressors. So we have we we have been sort of on the phone every other day, sort of uh, you know just going through doing doing our cognitive behavioral therapy and also um, assessing her symptoms and also sort of talking to um, human resources, trying to sort of coordinate everything. And she is getting better. And she realizes at this point, you know, she has to focus on her health first because her daughter then became symptomatic Mm -hmm. as well and that she needs to take care of Mm -hmm. her family. And um And the and and the institution is supportive, and basically she can. They have basically allowed her that
0: okay, she can take as long as she needs. Great. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, Well, okay. And you mentioned, you know, in many people, you know, many people have, um, you know, different different circumstances in terms of different health. Health conditions apart from COVID nineteen, and so any tips or best practices for those with parents or grandparents in their lives that you know they might be getting getting concerned about, like any um, you know, as a physician and who who is you know knows kind of beyond CNN. What um you know what would you say to to someone who um let's do two let's do somebody who you know have have um, parents or grandparents who have no symptoms of, of COVID-19, um, but, but are, but are concerned and, and want to know from someone like you, from an insider, um, you know, what is, what are the best practices for that person, um, to not, you know, to not contract it? And then I'll also be asking you someone who might be concerned because they are, you know, isolating or quarantine with a family member and they're, they're concerned that they, they may be having symptoms. And, um, so, so go ahead and t- tell me about someone without any symptoms and-, and still they're being concerned about preventing. And then someone who, you know, there's concern, maybe, you know, maybe they do. And and like you said, the testing is not ubiquitous this t- at this time. So can you hit both groups? Yeah. Just give so us I-, I think
1: I think in general, it's, it's just. Um, okay. I think no one will regret being overcautious. Okay. Um, I okay. think you might regret not taking the precautions, right? So we mm-hmm. do know that you are able to spread the virus even if you are not symptomatic, right? So it is just okay. at baseline best to assume that you may be carrying the virus, okay, as a young person. Okay. And, and it's not just the COVID, right? Coronavirus. We, there's, there are other viruses around, right? Depending on what season and sure. so on. And when you have, um, family members who have compromised immune system, like, oh, you know, sort of, sort of, yes, older family members and so on. And it doesn't matter in terms of older or not, you may have a younger family member with malignancy who are undergoing chemotherapy and so on, right? Um, mm-hmm. so it's best to assume that you may, Contract something from somewhere, and you may be in the incubation period, or you may be symptomatic, and you may give it to them. So, in general, you should be sort of practicing a certain things. For example, yes, you should be washing your hands. That's just that's I think that should be the standard right now nowadays, right? Um, Absolutely. So you should be you should you should be washing your hands as much as possible, and then in terms of With your with your grandparents, with your parents, in terms of social distancing. I know this is where people are sort of getting into this. Is social distancing really social isolation? That's not the case. But again, you you do need to you you can still visit your parents and grandparents, right? But it's also about hey, wear a mask, and if you are in the same sort of room with them, keep you know keep your distance and stay six feet apart. Um, and they sh- they should wear a mask if you're interacting with them so that those are things that you can actually practice. and if you're definitely symptomatic, um, I would say stay away from uh, your older folks. So that's the best way to protect okay. them and you should yeah you should definitely follow that
0: 14 days at least. Okay, and just because it, it is not like you said you cannot be too cautious it is always, great to have that reminder for our listeners will you and and things change Se- seemingly they kind of change by the moment for no other reason but you know you all are discovering things right this is new for everybody and, and you guys are discovering things you didn't you didn't mm-hmm. know but a week ago right so from that perspective mm-hmm. what at this moment in time what would you consider the the symptoms kind of the the symptoms that one should look out for, and I, and I understand there's some variability here. It's not, but um, but what generally would you say people should consider symptoms? Yeah, I know. I it's
1: like if you if you actually even for me, I'm getting like you know when I sort of like um, subscribe to the journals, I'm getting different symptoms each day. Like oh, this this could be a mm-hmm. symptom of COVID. Yeah. Recently, it's like oh, it, it could unmask seizure and so on. Um. And now that okay we're getting into spring with, you know, allergies and so on, it's it's just so confusing. Yeah. But I think um yes. Fever, definitely. Okay. And if if you are having cough, if you are having upper respiratory symptoms, I think those you cannot ignore. Okay. Those okay. are okay. Def- Fever, cough, definitely
0: respiratory. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I think those I, those are things you, you cannot ignore.
0: And I've heard things like even you know losing a sense of taste and smell. I don't know. Yeah. You know, is that been documented? Yeah. So, the, or? Yeah, so there's there's also yes, losing
1: sense of you know, taste and smell. Those are part of it. But if you're actually because I have patients now because they're it's like which one do you really focus on? But I'm, I'm just saying like in terms of sure. which ones are like the cardinal sort of like hey, if you have this, please don't ignore this.
0: Bring okay. it to your okay. attention. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, thank you. That is good to kind of have those have those basics kind of at the at the tip of your tongue, right? To, to and, and three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I understand you have international, you have a fascinating uh background. Not only do you have you seen things all the way from an Emerson to, uh, to, to Alaska, to, you know, July, but you've also had some international exposure. So do you have any, any professional insights you might have regarding the pandemic outside the U.S.? Any, any thoughts in that regard? Or? Um, so like you
1: said, so I, I, I love to travel and my experience in terms of the healthcare system in other countries is just stems from just my interest, um, not really being part of any organization. So uh, okay. I'll share with you some experiences. So this was when I was in medical school, I decided to just um just check out the healthcare system in Bangladesh, okay? And I okay. I actually went and um sort of shadowed physicians um in the sort of government hospitals, right? So, these are some of the okay. things that I saw. Um, and the reason I'm saying, for mentioning this thing, this kind of helps us realize in terms of the limitations that are present, that are sort of in other countries. So, things mm-hmm. that are facing, things that we are facing in the United States, so can you imagine if the same level of infections or spread occurs in this other countries, like how um, the devastation that it would be in those countries, you know what I mean? Or in terms Absolutely. of what, when we see... Or when we see the numbers that are actually listed, like anyone can go to Google or like you know World Health Co- World Health Organization and see the numbers that are listed, okay. And if you actually look at right. Africa, Asia, you'll see like the numbers are actually like the deaths deaths numbers like the, the number of deaths. Those are actually less than thousand, right? Um They're in the hundreds. Yeah. Or the number of uh, confirmed cases are also just barely in the thousands. Like, how accurate are they? And that kind of speaks to the limitation in infrastructure and so on. So if, if that, if there's limitation is just reporting in terms of testing. So imagine in terms of limitation in treatment and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and other things. So just going back to in Bangladesh. So I actually went and shadowed physicians and so they actually have a different hospital for infectious disease. So I went to the uh, hospital for tuberculosis. Okay. So here we have all this, like, you know, the N95 masks, right? Those are for the the one that we're having shortages here uh, for the airborne illnesses, right? And then if someone has tuberculosis, we put them in a negative pressure room. There, I actually saw patients just in an open room with the windows open. No one was wearing masks and so on. And I was just shocked. I'm like, what's happening here? Okay, and these are like multi-drug mm-hmm. resistant TB patients, and they're like, "Well, we don't have supplies, right?" And well, oh, they're getting treated, so we're just practicing hand hygiene and hoping for the best. And we think, as long as we do those things, things will be fine. And then I, I look, I went to the lab, and people were talking about, "Hey, we're we're running uh, blood work and doing blood tests on HIV patients, and we don't have gloves." And they're, mm. they're okay, like, hey, mm-hmm. we gloves. And so th- those are just some mm. of the things. And then I, 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 I met a nun in Tanzania. And so I went to this hospital when I went to sort of do my little, um, climb for Kilimanjaro. And when I went to this hospital and I started talking to her, some of the things that she was mentioning, like again, what they needed were things like gloves. And again, like, covers for like their beds. Um, women were giving births and their mattresses were getting covered in blood and they were like and yeah. they needed bed sheets. So those are like simple things that they're lacking. So I, I just cannot imagine um, if they had sort of this outbreak, what would happen? Right. The basic
0: um,
1: basic
0: pre COVID so now, with COVID, mm-hmm. you can, yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually really scary to think of because you know, because you were talking about a TB clinic actually where there were no masks at that time, and mm-hmm. yeah, okay, okay, wow. And, yeah, um, so one
1: other thing, yeah, go ahead,
0: go ahead. So, so please, I was
1: just going yeah. to point out one other thing, like, and, um, this is this is again, i I don't have any data or facts to support it. This is just my opinion, right. Um, I know sure. like there are countries um, who th- there are countries that kind of are not on people's sort of top list for like you know tourism, right? Um, so maybe those countries you may not see a higher number because people are not are not flocking to those countries, right? But in the same token, people from those countries, excuse me are working, Um, they're migrant workers, right? They're going to these other countries to work and where there is an outbreak. And when we, we have this sort of complete shutdown, economic shutdown, guess what happens? They don't have a job because they're not supported by the government and so on. So they're working from day to day so when there is this complete shutdown with their, when they're out of work for months at a time, so they, with what they're doing is they're returning back to their country and some of them are bringing back the diseases to their country. And if they don't have testing and so on, there may be outbreak and then we may, may, may not know about it because of the lack of infrastructure.
0: I think that is extremely, extremely insightful in terms of. You know, just realizing that. Look, when when we're talking about survival for people, right, and driven by just economic survival, then people will do what it takes that they need to. And you know, some of these things we're hearing about in the West, like some of these some of these things, they they kind of go out the window when you're talking about just basic survival, right, for one in their in their mm-hmm. family. So absolutely, you know, people will find a way to you know, as migrant workers, that makes complete sense. So I think that. Thinking that in that sense, uh, you know, I, I imagine the underreporting is, you know, underreporting is an, you know, understatement with respect to what's going on globally at this point. Um, you know, I, I imagine, especially given, given these, um, you know, these these anec anecdote, the anecdotes, but really, you, you know, you've been on the ground in these countries. You've seen with your own eyes how things are, and um, that that. I think that's really insightful with respect to that. Um, well, tell tell me about this, and I think, and we're going to talk later about sort of the what your predictions are given your your you're really your multi-faceted, um, you know, and your diverse, you know, if not professional. Even your, your eye in these different cultures in, on the ground as a physician, regardless of whether you worked there as a physician, you witnessed it as a physician with your, with your knowledge. So we will talk later about sort of what you see as the future of medicine in the U.S. and, and really globally, I guess, post COVID. Um, but before then, I want to bridge that with you actually happen to have, you know, it happened and you have earned professional experience acting as a liaison between Clinicians and administration, right? And including, and I'm wondering if, you, if there are any influences from outside, you know, the healthcare industry. I know that, you know, in, in industry, a lot, oftentimes some of the best ideas come from outside the industry, right? And we, and we implement within, within the industry. Any influences from outside the healthcare industry that you as a physician who served as that liaison has, t- has tapped into, to, um, to, to help stem and to help work on some of the systemic issues that exist. Oh, yes. Um,
1: so again, so I, yes, before I answer your question again, I will share my, share some other sort of experiences. So one thing I want to share is that, you know, do like, it. so becoming a doctor, right? Or becoming anything. We okay. have like a curriculum for everything, right? So when I sure. became a doctor, I knew like, okay, I could just ask anyone, like, hey, what do you do to become a doctor? Like, they'll tell you, yes, yeah, so you go to four years of college, you go to med school, you do a residency, fellowship. You'll have to take this exam, then you'll you'll have to get board certified and so on, right? But um, yep. no one ever no one ever told me that once you get out into the real world, right, when you get a job, there are these other skills that are required. Like you you have to work with staff, you have to work with administration and other physicians and other people with titles that starts with chief or chairman or or president or <laughs>
0: other <laughs> sorts of titles,
1: right? That's totally different I've, training,
0: right? Their training is totally yeah. different too, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: And and, and, then, and I'm like, hold on. As I was going through college and med school and so on, you know, and it's like, okay, I need to learn how to deal with loss, failure, teamwork, building relationship, communication skills. Instead, I feel like I was I was picking up more baggage instead of learning the skills. And then when I got into real world, I'm like, Oh no. Okay. Where do I get the curriculum for learning this
0: thing? Okay. <laughs> so where's the test I can take? Who's, yeah, that's great. That is really insightful because I know we, we work with so many physicians and it is almost sort of lockstep, right? You do this and you take the MCAT yeah. and you take these classes to take, the take the MCAT, then you take the MCAT, then you then, and then you go through a math process after this. And then it's very sort of lock-in step. And then you get out in the real world, like you said, and it's like, whoa. Whole different, so that okay. Keep going, please share. Like I know yeah. there's probably there yeah. to tons of physicians who are like, "Yes, that's totally," <laughs> and some who are actually junior to you who really could use some of your some of this from you right now. So go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah, and
1: and I think like even just not just physicians and other professions, we're kind of just expected to just grow up and just just acquire the skills. And yes, some people mm-hmm. are very fortunate to have supportive family members, parents, or relatives, or teachers, and so on. And you learn from examples, but not everyone's actually blessed with that, right? And, and we just, we just go on through life. And then suddenly one day, like, what's happening, right? So for me, uh, I have to say, like, yes, I have been fortunate enough through different experiences to find people. And work um, by the people that have made a huge difference in my life, and the three people that I sort of, yes, even to this day, like even like every day, um, I kind of rely on. Uh, for me, the three people uh, are uh, Rick Warren, Brené Brown, and Simon Sinek, and they have sort of like helped me focus. And um, so, for example, Rick Lawrence Purpose Driven Life and Simon Sinek started With Why, that kind of has helped me sort of let go of all the, as I, I say, BS and be more comfortable with my boundaries and at work sort of be more focused in terms of how I sort of interact with everyone in terms of building relationships and having a purpose in terms of influencing others and sort of um, and also help other people sort of. Discover their purpose as well.
0: Very interesting. Is there? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Is, is there any one one kind of um, I hate to say tip, but one sort of um, guiding principle that, in particular, from Simon Sinek, or that that has helped you as you navigate that, or to apply some of the. Um, Principles that, or or not? I mean, any? I think um, so.
1: In combination with all three of them, I think the number one thing is um, this whole purpose and start with why. I think it's important for everyone to discover, for every human being, You, you should be able to answer this one question in your life What is your purpose? What is your why in life? And I think that then focuses everything else that you do in terms of your work, your personal life, and it kind of aligns everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you're not burdened with, um, in terms of, hey, schedules and so on. And you're not, you're not trying to fill your day with things and sort of right. material things and so on. So it's the, it's the main thing I would say for you're everyone. Bypassing that- that-
0: that is great. That's like the compass then. And you're bypassing distractions mm-hmm. and you can really kind of drill yeah. down to essentials. That's okay. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: So no, that, that's, I think that's the main thing I would say. Like, I think, um, for everyone, if, if, it, if every human being could answer that question, I think the whole world would be
0: transformed. Very good. Yeah. Yes, that deserved a pause. That absolutely. So let me ask you, given, um, given your professional experience acting as a liaison, right? Between the cl- clinicians, the administration, applying some of these principles in terms of living a very purpose driven life and applying that guiding principle to your, to your, to your whole life, but you know, absolutely your professional life. And what, what do you, and this is just a prediction clearly, right? We, we don't, you know, in this age of COVID-19, we kind of don't even know what's happening five minutes later in some ways. But given, um, you know, given what you've seen again from both domestically from, from Alaska to, to Emerson, right? To, to mm-hmm. outside the country, you know, to, to different developing countries and, uh, and different continents and, um, you know, and in just, you know, be, practicing at the same time and doing the comments of what do you see for the future of medicine, Um, both from, you know, from the physician perspective to start with for sure. And then I'm curious, right. From, from the patient perspective as well. But, um but yeah, what, what do you see for the future of medicine in, in the U S you know, and I say post COVID-19, I know they're talking about, well, you know, it's going to continue, right. It's not going to be one, it's going to be gone, but it kind of posts this, um this time, where it's it's really at a sort of an apex in that sense. What what do you see? How do you see medicine possibly changing or any transitions in healthcare? And you know, it, let's say with this country, given um, in the post COVID nineteen environment, what are your predictions in that sense?
1: Um, so for me I think with COVID, um what, what COVID is doing is um is definitely um ushering in the next step in the evolution of doctor patient relationship. Um it's 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 kind of help it's making us um redefine our expectations and Currently, I'm reading this book called The Making of the American Patient. It kind of goes into the history of how the patients are kind of um, got turned into, like, viewed as a consumer, right? But anyway, um, so the reason I say in terms of it's the next step in the evolution of the doctor-patient relationship. So if you actually look at how um, things kind of just evolved, right? So back in the day, people kind of just did their own thing in their house tried to, like, you know, manage their symptoms. And they only went to the doctor when it was kind of like everything else failed. It was, like, really serious, right? Sure. And doctors okay. would make home yes. visits, okay? People okay. didn't go to clinics and so on. That only existed in, like, bigger hospitals and so on. And if people didn't get admitted to the hospital, doctors came to your house, right? You got treatment in the right. house. And then now right. we have this thing, like, what do you mean? <laughs> doctor's going to come to the house, right? <laughs> this is now, like, a yeah. new concept. Right. Yeah. So for me with yep. COVID, I think I think the biggest I, biggest thing which is right now is telemedicine. Um, for me, like in this, even in my current organization, I've been talking about telemedicine for two years, and they have been sort of like brushing it off. And then with COVID, in two weeks, they implemented telemedicine. Right. And before, doctors were saying, like, oh, it's not the same thing. You know, I can't really listen to them. I can see their, you know, the swelling in their legs. And how how am I going to manage the patients? And will the patients be open? You know, they won't be able to hear me, see me. It's not the same thing. But I have seen patients are actually very happy. And I think the situation has made them more open to this concept. But yeah, so I think telemedicine is definitely something I think is is the future um, in terms of medicine. And and I'm kind of excited to see what kind of improvements actually uh, come about in terms of how we, um, you know, sort of go about doing this. I know this is really new right now for a lot of the organizations, the platforms that we're using. um, And then also in terms of Another thing I would like to say, just in terms of telemedicine, this is something even I was doing this leadership course um, about two years ago and I was thinking like, why couldn't we do, implement telemedicine all over the world, even when you look at Doctors Without Borders, right? And I, I'm someone mm-hmm, who's the nurse, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, it would be so great if I could do Doctors Without Borders, right? But I don't have, like, yeah. okay, I cannot just take a month off. Like I, need to, I still need to pay off student loans, right? But why couldn't I just sign up on an app for, like, two hours or three hours where I can just communicate with a patient in Africa or something like that, Right. Or what about Absolutely. someone who is like in, in, I don't know, in Nepal, who has a really complicated cardiac condition. They can't see a cardiologist. Why couldn't they consult with a cardiologist in, in Gillette, Wyoming? Why not? Right. Send them your EKG and so on. And they can tell you, Hey, go ahead. This is what you, how you would manage this. Right. So I think that's, right. that's what I see in terms of the future. Like there shouldn't be any
0: borders. That's actually really exciting to be able to tap into, you know, the highest which is that level of expertise in any particular area that one ordinarily, right, it being in a yeah. possibly like a village in, in some area of, of, of part, one part of the world really would have limited access, right, to, to, as an understatement. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is fascinating. And let me ask you this, just given what we do working with so many physicians, I'm very curious about this. How do you think, now all of that really was, um, from the physician and, and patient perspective. What I want to understand is there, how do you think this will impact work-life balance for physicians post-COVID-19, especially with respect to the telemedicine? And I mean, tell me about that. I think that's, that's potentially pretty exciting as well. So tell me about that. I know you value work-life balance. Um,
1: so tell me. Oh about yeah. 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 Definitely. And I think, um, in terms of how you use telemedicine, it's only limited by your imagination, and even with mm-hmm. um i know there there are specialties that are procedure driven right, and they might be like, "Hey, sure. I can't perform surgery via telemedicine right yeah there's sure. how, yeah how how will that work but I think um th- I think there's always like ways about it in terms of um, in terms of how you sort of arrange your schedule and so on. But I think um telemedicine definitely uh will sort of create a different way of in terms of living your life, in terms of work-life balance, in terms of your relationship with your family. So I'll just give you an example. So I have a colleague. I mean, I don't have any children or anything, but I have a colleague who is on maternity leave right now. And she is actually quite stressed that, oh my God, my patients and so on, I can't really take that many months off and so on. So telemedicine for her, if she wanted to spend six months with her child and she's doing primary care at home, that would be perfect for her, right? Like she... Yes, yes, her child is there, but she could be at home a certain amount of time and still see patients, right? Without having to leave the house. And someone like me who loves traveling, like if I could actually do primary care and live in another country, that would be awesome. So that's something for me. And I think it's just, yeah, so it's only limited by your imagination. So people can alter and and implement different sort of way, implement telemedicine in different ways to fit their lifestyle and the other thing i'll say is that like i said when i talked about um bethel alaska so it's a very different um environment and they have a very hard time recruiting um physicians so when you have this remote areas, um, because right now the traditional sort of sense is that, okay, we're going to hire a physician, they're going to move here, oh my God, their family may not want to move here, the wife may not want to move here, or the husband may not have a job, they may not want to move here. Yeah. So in areas like that, telemedicine would allow you to actually have the specialty and you know, the physicians that you need without this worry of like, okay, they, they won't move here because of the area.
0: Absolutely. It's that whole borderless idea, right? And it benefits everyone, the physicians and Mm -hmm. the patients who have access to care they may otherwise not have. Mm -hmm. And the physicians who have this expertise and they really are happy for it not to be so limited geographically, um, with respect to that. And, and to your point about the, the surgery, sure, some component, but there are other components pre-op, post-op that maybe could be Mm -hmm. done via telemedicine, right? So it's, it's yeah. kind of like you said, looking at it and, and looking at the pieces and saying, how can we put these pieces together in a way that doesn't compromise quality of care, but um, yet benefits everyone in, you know, multidimensionally. So that is, that is fascinating. I love that borderless, um, borderless medicine. Any last take home, you've already shared so much valuable information for really everyone from physicians to patients to to basically everyone. Um, So any last take-home messages you'd like to share with any of our listeners?
1: Um, So the only, uh, yes. Um, Again, I would like to say is that I think COVID, um, actually, let me just rephrase that. Um, we, We live in a world that's just always on the move. And we're always busy in terms of just trying to acquire things and we're chasing things. I think COVID has created an opportunity just to take a collective pause. It's almost like a forced pause for introspection. And I hope everyone uses this opportunity to find their purpose and make a difference in
0: the world. Wow, I think you brought this full circle. Thank you so much, Dr. Khan. I really appreciate your sharing your really valuable insights with us. They've been enlightening, fascinating, and, um, and inspiring all at the same time. And for our listeners, in case you joined us late or would like to share the show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is intersectionsmatch.com. And our team may be reached at info in intersectionsmatch.com. So do appreciate your learning with us and email our team with topics you'd like to discuss in um, the COVID-19 series or future shows in general. Be well, everyone. Take care. Try as I may, I could never explain. What I-